Hello, and welcome back to the People Power Lunch Hour show. I'm your host, Vanessa Maria Graber. On today's show, we are celebrating Black History Month, not just today, but all month long. And we are featuring stories about famous Philadelphians and Philadelphians who have made a huge impact on history. On today's show, we are going to be talking about the life and work of Octavius Caddo. If you don't know him, he was a scholar, organizer, soldier, athlete, and Philadelphia hero. He was a tireless advocate for his people and believed that education and civic engagement was a means to better his people. He was most well known for leading the Institute for Colored Youth, assembling some of the first black army regiments to fight in the Civil War, working to pass the Bill of, of Rights for Public Transportation, being an accomplished black baseball athlete, and organizing African-American men to be able to vote and get out and vote. And he did all of this before the age of 32. On today's show, we'll talk with historian V. Chapman Smith um, about Caddo's legacy. V. Chapman Smith has been serving as the Caddo Memorial Vice President for Education Initiatives and recently was the project manager for the first Caddo Education Initiative supporting the memorial. This initiative provided professional development to 90 Philadelphia educators, building their competencies and engaging students in issues of race relations. The initiative reached over 11,000 public school students. Through this project, Chapman Smith spearheaded the creation of the Caddo Education Portal, OV Caddo and American Civil Rights on the website ushistory.org. She also advised artists Willis Nomo Humphrey and Keir Johnston on the creation of the Caddo Mural Arts Mural at University Charter School on the 1400 block of Catherine Street here in Philadelphia. Chapman Smith retired from the United States National Archives in 2018, bringing to end over 40 years of leadership experience focused on organizational capacity building with an emphasis on using cultural assets and history to improve urban education and civic life. Over her career, Chapman Smith has been recognized for promoting civic understanding in a diverse society and has made a lifelong commitment to improving outcomes for children and their families. She has served and continues to serve on a number of civic policy groups, commissions, and boards, and place particular emphasis on education and public use of historical assets to improve understanding. She's going to talk with us and share all of her amazing knowledge about Octavius Caddo. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, for uh, Vanessa, for inviting me today. I'm actually uh, excited about being here. Yes, Octavius Caddo... Um, <laughs> is really an amazing story, the fact that he accomplished so much um, at 32, uh, the fact that he accomplished so much at 32 years old is is pretty amazing. Um, one of the things that I um, wanted to talk about, again, uh, is his life as a scholar, right? He was a pretty brilliant young man. He had a lot of opportunities to go and teach elsewhere, but he was committed to staying and mentoring the students at the uh, Institute for Colored Youth, which was a, a Quaker school. Yeah, it, it was um, managed by Quakers, but uh, the school itself um, focused largely uh, on the African-American community here in Philadelphia. And Cato himself was a student at the school, and it was through the school that he was able 
to uh, really expand his knowledge and ability and to become uh, one of the sort of highlights or shining stars of the African-American community. Um, he showed a great propensity for education, and that was one of the reasons that his father, William Caddo, was willing to make the necessary sacrifices to have him go to the Institute of Colored Youth. It was not an easy school to attend, uh, although by the time Caddo got there, it was a free school. However, when you didn't have your kids working for supporting the family, because back then most families needed everybody pitching in, it was could be a hardship. But he felt it was important that his son go to the school because he could see the brilliance in him. Uh, he took very well to the classical education that the school offers uh, offered. To us today, it's hard to think of going to a school with a classical education because it means you've got to, at a very young age, you have to be interested in Greek and Roman culture and language, and Caddo became very proficient with Greek and Latin. Uh, you also have to do advanced mathematics I mean, and be proficient in English oratory, which many of us can't do today. Most of us are fearful of standing up and doing public speaking. But he showed a great ability in that. And he was one of the leading, if not the leading student in his school during his time attending there. After uh, finishing the school, he still didn't feel that he had this enough competency in uh, Greek and Latin, so he went to Washington, D.C. and worked with a private tutor to help build his skill even more. And so that experience as well uh, gave him um, um, a great foundation for becoming an extraordinary teacher at the Institute for Colored Youth, which, by the way, uh, was a high school, a pre preparatory school. At the time Cato was attending, um, the Institute for Colored Youth, there were opportunities opening up for African Americans to go to college. Cato himself did not go to college. He just had the Institute for Colored Youth. But it gave him this amazing foundation. And when he was out, not only in the black community, but in the white community, he would demonstrate these proficiencies he developed. And there was great respect for him uh, in many quarters in Philadelphia. So he truly was a great scholar. And, you know, one of the reasons his father sent him to the Institute for Colored Youth, too, was because it was a school that was focused on developing teachers. So that meant his son could become a teacher. And that was a great career to have. I don't know, we don't seem to look at teachers in the same way today, but you know the people in the community often refer to him as professor. <laughs> uh, I don't think any of us really call our high school teachers professor. And you know he was uh, much admired for his ability, and his students seemed to have loved him in, in many quarters. Yeah, and he was offered the opportunity to go to New York or D.C. with very prestigious institutions, and he chose to stay in Philadelphia. 
Well, I think he was grounded in Philadelphia. I mean, he came to Philadelphia as a young man. Um, he had family connections here in Philadelphia. We don't always speak about those, but some of his family members were through his mother's line, and so he had cousins and other uh, connections. But he also built a strong network of friends. And sometimes when you get comfortable in a place, it's hard to leave. In addition to that, Philadelphia was truly an important place uh, during Cato's lifetime. It was uh, the largest African-American community. Uh, it had built many founding institutions, uh, Mother Bethel Church, St. Thomas Church, um, the Free African Society. There was a lot going on, and it had a really stable uh, but small black middle class. So, you know, the world you know is the world you know, and he was comfortable. Although he did spend quite a bit of time in Washington, D.C., because his father, as a minister, uh, was associated with some churches in Washington, so he often went with his father on those visits, and he built a network of friends. In addition to that, a few of the students that came out of the Institute for Colored Youth uh, ended up in D.C. helping to establish schools for the freed uh, enslaved people, the people who had been uh, formerly enslaved. And so uh, they had invited Caddo down to D.C. to help structure those schools. And he was, uh, he did a great job, I, and I will actually tell you one of the schools that came out of this in D.C. is the M Street School, which later became Dunbar High School, and that was considered the top high school in the country. Um, especially uh, as you moved into the 20th century. So he left a strong legacy there uh, at the, uh, in Washington, D.C., and had many friends. But I think he loved his friends in, in Philadelphia. That's the most I can say, because he didn't leave a diary to tell us why he wanted to stay. But, I mean, his connections here were obviously strong, including his beloved baseball team. Yes, that's right. And he, he just did so much before the age of, of 32 when he died. It's it's really amazing. Um, I want to talk about the Bill of Rights for Equal Access to Public Transit, because um, in Philadelphia, where we are celebrating and having some events around Transit Equity Day, and uh, there's going to be an event on uh, Rosa Parks' birthday and also on, on Cato's birthday. And again, Way before Rosa Parks and, and you know, the civil rights movement was organizing around the buses, you had Octavius Caddo here in Philadelphia doing something similar with the streetcars. Can you tell our listeners and viewers about some of that work? Well, that work um, isn't Caddo's alone. I think it's important because in telling that story, we often leave out the women. And I mentioned that to you. Um, Yes, Caddo uh, sat a whole night on a trolley car, and it was an outrage. But black women were being thrown off of trolleys prior to Caddo actually doing his sit-in at the trolleys. And uh, one of the individuals who uh, he had a very close relationship with, Carolyn LeCount, was his fiance, and she had some bad experiences. And she was a teacher, too. She became uh, a teacher and a principal, and she was a graduate of uh, the Institute for Colored Youth. So just so you know, Caddo was only the head of the boys' division of the school. Um, the principal 
there were other people who were principals of the school that he worked for. So uh, his role um, was somewhat narrow because, first of all, back then, uh, they tended to have men teach boys and women teach girls. There was a lot of, uh, of separation of the races back then. But Cato's work uh, was undergirded uh, in the tr uh, streetcar effort uh, by the women who put their bodies on the line. You know, it, and it was a sign of real disrespect of the women. Um, First of all, if you wanted to take a trolley ride and you were black, you couldn't sit in the car like Rosa Parks. You had to be on the outside hanging on. And so imagine a woman with the, you know, the long skirts and everything being put in. And it was dangerous. You could fall off. And so he took a stand uh, in, in support of what they were doing. And he also worked uh, with political allies that he had, uh, Thaddeus Stevens and William Kelly, who were both um, U.S. Uh, congressmen, to get the state legislature to pass the Bill of Rights for Transportation. Um, Cato had a strong hand in developing what the law would look like, but his experience sitting on that train all night made him realize that he wasn't going to get anywhere with the desegregation of public transportation by appealing to the owners of the trolley cars. So the only way they were going to get change was to have the state legislature actually pass a law. And then even after that, they still didn't allow uh, integration or people, in the, and the women are the ones who tested that law. The women, and particularly Carolyn LeCount, mm -hmm. she tested that law, and uh, she was actually thrown off a trolley. So she took the case to court. Can you imagine this? And the person? judge didn't believe her. She didn't believe her at first. You know, it was like, you know, you don't. Well, first of all, it, during that time, women really didn't have a voice or a public voice that people recognized. The, even the women abolitionists had a real hard time having people accept them being outspoken. Women were supposed to be demure and in their homes or with their children, or maybe a school teacher. But, you know, to be out there testing a law, that was like, no, that didn't happen, kind of thing. So, uh, but she was a very willful, strong-headed person, secure in herself. She came from a black middle-class family. Her father was an undertaker. Uh, they were members of St. Thomas Church. And she grew up being confident in who she is. And so she wasn't taking any flack on that. So that's why I always say we've got to look to the stories of the women as well. This is not, Cato's story is as much about women as it is men. And I learned that lesson actually from the Caddo family when, because they, uh, the, the uh, descendants of Caddo helped us uh, shape the education website that we built. And the oldest member of the family said to me, remember the women, because Caddo's life was made possible by the women in our family as well. And so I'm like, oh, God, I've got to take this so hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm always skeptical of anybody who, who says they did anything alone, right? 
the best organizers work in coalitions. Yep. They get support from a diversity of people, and Cato was no exception. I do want to move on to talk about um, women in, involved in, in organizing the Black Vote and, and the anniversaries of the um, the 15th and the 19th Amendments, which, um, you know, respectively is the 150th and 100th anniversary uh, this year in, in 2020. Can you talk more about that and and, and how Cato's uh, involvement and, and the women's organizing as well, um, you know, influenced this amendment to be passed and, and helped getting people to go out and vote? Well, actually, that's a story that's not told very well. And I'm working with a group of people now uh, to bring forward the story of the women who actually helped make the 15th Amendment possible. Um, the, the society of Caddo's, as I had said, um, had very strict rules about the role of women and what they should be doing. But uh, in the black communities, those boundaries were always challenged. Um, there were um, a series of what they called colored people's conventions um, in, during Caddo's time that brought together the community to work on what um, kinds of legislative issues needed to be out there, what kind of social issues needed to be brought forward to address the condition of uh, the African-American. And some of the women who participated in that uh, served as um, supports by uh, providing ways for delegates to get together. So many of you may have heard of the Green Book movie. (laughs) And during Caddo's time, there weren't many hotels available for delegates to stay in if they came together either in Philadelphia or Syracuse or, or Harrisburg. So the black women made sure that there, there were spaces and homes for the black men delegates to these conventions would be in. And they also used those as opportunities to express what they were concerned about. Uh, and some of the men, including Caddo, uh, especially through uh, the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League, uh, was willing to uh, be an advocate for women's rights in terms of voting with the 15th Amendment. It didn't get very far, but uh, there were other men who, they weren't anti-woman, but what they were concerned was, was that it was going to be extremely hard to get a 15th Amendment for black males that you know gave them uh, rights because of the racism in the society and the way they saw black people, the majority saw black people as not being competent. Um, and then to add these fragile women who seemed least educated, this is the mindset of people back then. Sure. You know, this was gonna make the pro- uh, process even more complicated. And it was because of that um, that some black men said, first the men, then the women. And so uh, in the black community, uh, the 15th Amendment was seen as unfinished business. Um, In some of the white community, especially with people like Susan B. Anthony, uh, it seemed like a betrayal because they actually had mail in in the legislation. Uh, people like Frances Harper, who's actually spent a lot of her life 
here in Philadelphia. She only lived like almost like a half block from the Institute for, for Colored Youth. She was an amazing orator, or orator herself and writer. And actually some people in looking through all various archives have found that she's probably the most prolific writer in, woman writer in the 19th century. She also has been it was an inspiration to Toni Morrison for her book, Beloved. So this is how amazing uh, Frances Harper is. She continued to push forward with uh, suffrage, white suffragettes uh, to try to have blacks uh, be a part of the 19th Amendment. And now the 19th Amendment doesn't say black people are excluded, but the way they ended up being excluded was by practice. So um, by the time the 19th Amendment was passed, uh, Jim Crow was very much embedded in the South. Uh, there were Jim Crow practices across the country. And the way our elections work, which is something people need to understand today, is that even though there can be a federal law that says you have the right to vote, the actual voting process is managed at the state and local level. And that's why... Today, even though there's supposed to be universal suffrage, there's voter suppression in places. So if, to me, this is still unfinished business because there's a lot of uh, discrimination based on race and economics that keep people from voting. So we often present uh, these stories as uh, important high moments without digging deep into what they mean have really meant. Uh, for Caddo, the 15th Amendment was a signature moment. And the fact that he had worked with others like Frederick Douglass and uh, um, Henry, Har uh, Henry Garnett in getting the legislation passed. And by the way, Garnett is pictured in a portrait at the Capitol showing the passage of the 19th Amendment. He was one of Caddo's New York people. Um, what it did do is that it laid the foundation. It laid the foundation for the modern civil rights movement because without those federal laws on the books, it still would have been an uphill, uh, even more of an uphill climb to get uh, the voting rights legislation in 1965 and, and going forward. So the, it was foundational, but as I say, even today as we celebrate the 19th Amendment, we really need to recognize that there are large swaths of women particularly African-American, Native American, Chinese-American, who were not able to vote because of state and local laws in our nation. Yeah, I'm, my family lives in Puerto Rico, and they, not, they cannot vote for president in the elections. And, you know, we see all the people that are incarcerated and, and, and people formerly incarcerated that also... Uh, don't have voting rights, people in the county jails who haven't even been convicted of anything. Um, and then, of course, the business in Florida with having to pay the fines, which is seen as a poll tax. So it goes on and on. It is, I agree, unfinished business, and we need to keep fighting, fighting, yes, and, and, and changing these laws and, and building off you know, um, the work of all of these amazing people. And we also, I think, need to tell the stories to our children differently because we get excited. The suffragettes won the right to vote. But the question is, who got to vote? <laughs> you know, and the 15th Amendment 
gave black males the right to vote, but were they able to? <laughs> so we need to be able to tell those stories more clearly uh, to our children so they understand the unfinished business that they have to do uh, to make America what it needs to be, living up to the ideals we espoused at the founding. Yes, and, and the sacrifices that were made. Absolutely. Uh, people literally putting their bodies on the line, um, suffering a lot of violence, abuse, intimidation, and even death. Even death. And Ida B. Wells was uh, also a black suffragette, and, was, and she spent time in Philadelphia. And actually, Frances Harper, she saw as one of her mentors. And everybody knows her from her uh, campaign against lynching. And a lot of the lynching was done because black men and women were trying to uh, uh, exert their rights. And some of it was in voting. And so we need to remember those sacrifices. I actually tell my children, at this point, kids, you got some crazy ideas because you're young, okay? I don't care who you vote for, but you better vote because our people lived and died to have this right. Don't ever let anybody take that from you. So, you know, we've got to get people out there voting. And one of my big pet peeves now is that it's very important to um, re-empower African-American males to vote because they were really significant in the 19th century in the North, particularly. I was looking at a chart recently that showed how uh, the 19th Amendment was passed. And if it wasn't for Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, we wouldn't have a 19th Amendment ratification in Pennsylvania. And the black population in Philadelphia was very significant in, in supporting that. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, we've got to, like, gain our power back and do these things because they can make a difference. And on this show, we say don't just vote. Organize. Organize. Right? Organize. Educate yourself. Um, and, you know, get involved in the community. I think Cato exemplified all those things and especially young people again you know um, having people under the age of 30 civically engaged organizing sharing um, that energy that enthusiasm I think only results in in positive outcomes I do want to talk about Cato's death and the day um, the, uh, the events surrounding his death uh, because again he he gave his life um, for this right to vote. And so here in Philadelphia, um, he had been working with Republicans, actually, not Democrats, um, and organizing people, uh, talking to people one by one, um, having community meetings, and um, encouraging people to overcome their fear and get out the vote. And some people voted, but it wasn't until after he died that, you know, more people decided to go out there and and vote be, because he had given his life. Can, can you talk about that day and some of the things that happened? Okay. Well, actually, I want to start just a few days before. Okay. Because uh, what is important to understand is that political parties can change over time. And during Caddo's time, the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln. It was the party that had passed... Uh, Lincoln um, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which no matter what people say about it, the one thing that was clearly important about that was that it enabled uh, African-Americans to serve as federal troops. And I know you're going to have 
uh, a person on your show afterwards who's a, a U.S. Uni a United States Colored Troop reenactor. And that was clearly a major turning point because the black community uh, had fought very hard, lobbied very hard with Lincoln to do that. So from that moment on, they were Lincoln peeps, okay? I'm just going to say that. But uh, the party also advanced uh, various civil rights efforts uh, in the Congress. So to the African-American community, the Republican Party was the party. And Cato became an ardent Republican. I mean, over-the-top Republican. He was actively involved with the Union League. Um, he... Uh, try to uh, lobby and convince people in the community how important uh, it is for them to vote Republican. The problem is that the black community was in Philadelphia at that time was adjacent to the Irish community, which was largely Democratic. So the political tensions between the two communities was very high. And the Irish immigrants, uh, Irish community made up a, a lot of the police force as well. Yeah, well, they're, you know, all politics is about power and opportunity. And when a party's in charge, their people come in. And so the Democrats are in, the Irish police are in. If the Republicans come in, what happened to the Irish police? We, you know, I'm just saying that's that that's the dynamic people are looking at, and their jobs were on the line from their perspective. There was a lot of things wrapped up in, into this, and so uh, they were fighting over real stuff. You know, uh, the first election in 1870, which was the first election where blacks could vote in Philadelphia, uh, there were actually federal troops on the ground. Uh, under the Enforcement Act that helped to quell any of the um, uh, um, dangers that were uh, rising up in the communities. But in 1871, the election where Cato was assassinated, there were no federal troops on the ground. And he was very concerned that Irish gangs and other white gangs were going around intimidating people. And actually, a number of African-American men were shot. Actually, one man was shot in front of his four-year-old daughter and shot right in the head. Cato was not the only one to die. Yeah, several people uh, were shot at, and, and there was a lot of violence, and too. And there was a lot of violence. And by the way, Philadelphia has had a history of uh, racial violence uh, along the, uh, uh, over its lifetime uh, during the time of Cato. And so um, when Cato was shot, uh, right, right before he was shot, he was actually going back to where he lived. He lived in a boarding house, which was very common for teachers at the time, uh, to get some of his military equipment because he had been um, made a brigadier inspector in uh, African-American uh, division as part of the Pennsylvania National Guard. So he was calling, going to call his troops to replace the federal troops that weren't there. So um, it was his intent was not to uh, create violence, but try to quell the violence. But as I had mentioned, Cato was really well known. Everybody knew him. The Irish people knew him. The black people knew him. I'm just saying everybody knew because he had such a strong reputation. 
And uh, so Frank Kelly saw him and assassinated him. Now, because he was such a, a well-known figure and a much respected figure, he ended up having the largest funeral in Philadelphia after the funeral we had for Abraham Lincoln, which was huge. He had 125 carriages, all these officials. They actually closed city government. Yeah, they shut everything down. They paid for it. Yeah. And they gave him a military funeral, he too. Had a, well, because he was a, a military mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. So and I often imagine him wearing his military uniform in his in his casket. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know for sure because I don't have a real description. I haven't been able to find a description of that. But uh, it was a military funeral, and he was buried uh, at Lebanon Cemetery, which was at that point down in Passyunk Avenue. Uh, and it was a cemetery founded by the family of a childhood friend of his, Jacob White Jr. So uh, it was, you know, a lot of outrage in the community broadly about him being killed and the way he was killed. Uh, however, uh, there were other forces that helped Frank Kelly get away. Uh, it was nearly 10 years before the trial finally was held, and it ended up uh, that he was acquitted, and it was an all-white jury, I will say. So, you know, it makes you think about criminal justice. When we were doing the education project, uh, in reading Cato's story, I became very concerned about how do we tell that story to young people today because of all the things that have happened with black men, don't shoot, hands up. Uh, the other things with uh, police being um, culpable in situations that were against uh, black people. So we worked really hard uh, to help people teachers be able to have really good conversations with kids around the Cato story in, in terms of how they were feeling that story resonated with them. Uh, I, it was important for us to let teachers know that the students need, needed to express themselves, even if it wasn't totally historically accurate. You can always go back to the history and explain what really happened, but you know, there's this sense of, um, there was this sense among us planning it that we had to empower teachers to let students speak, which is something that you guys like to do, empower people to speak up. And then you figure out what the real facts are so people can come together if they can. So That's right. That's why it's, you know, the people power <laughs> show <laughs> because, you know, all the great things were accomplished, you know, through through people power. And, uh, and and people like Octavius Cato. Before we go to a break and, and start speaking with Earl, uh, can we just talk about, you know, his legacy, you know, everything that he did and, and what it means for people today in, in this particular time? Well, it's um, sometimes it's a challenge to figure out what people's legacies are unless you know their stories. I mean, I'm just saying it's really challenging. So part of what we did for the memorial project is that we actually talked, one, to the family to see what the legacy was to them, because family members can really shape who you become as adults. And I will tell you that the Caddo family continues to live forward his legacy of education and accomplishment. So that's the first thing, and I think it's awesome. And I saw the little Caddo children at the memorial, and they were just, you know, living their power. So 
That's one thing. The other thing is that his story, I think, empowers young people today to look at their world in a more critical way and also own their own power. The fact that he developed himself to be a great scholar, he worked for his community. So part of the work uh, that we did with the kids was to have them um, tell their story around Caddo. How is it empowering him? What's the legacy they feel he left them? So people should think about that. But in terms of other things that are legacies, as I mentioned earlier, Caddo laid the foundation for civil rights activism like Martin Luther King going forward. Uh, if he had not worked with others to get those laws on the books, they would have been starting from a different place. And that was, um, you know, it could have been a problem. Also at the Institute of Colored Youth, even though he was not the principal of the school, he left a legacy there, and there were uh, people who were his students who went on to do amazing things. Uh, one of them was John Con Con Cromwell, who ended up moving to D.C. He became one of Caddo's D.C. people, because he, he, he wrote in his memoir about how he was an awesome teacher for him. But he actually he himself laid the foundation for Carter G. Woodson to do what he did in terms of black history, gathering black history, legacy around. So, you know, you may touch, you may not, it's sometimes challenging, but you got to look through the lives of others, how Caddo is touching people today, how his legacy lives in his family, and also what, how he may, through what he has done, change the way our world is today. Because I believe that what he did with the voting rights was probably the most important thing he could have done to help make the modern civil rights movement move forward. Absolutely. You can see his memorial. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful sculpture um, on the south side of City Hall facing a broad street. I encourage everyone who's here in Philadelphia to definitely Stop by, give homage, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and I would also say, and this is what I did on my birthday, is to go hold his hands and and just say thank you. Yes. <laughs> and, and get inspired by him, yeah. you know. That's a, a source of inspiration um, if you're interested in. Uh, v. Chapman Smith, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Is there a, a website or a resource you'd like to share with the public if they would like more information? Well, I, uh, I would recommend that people go to the public website that we put up for the school children, and it's caddo.ushistory.org. Uh, and we call the website Forging Citizenship, which is what I feel Caddo did for us. He helped to forge citizenship. And uh, not just for African-Americans, because the law that he, laws that he got on the books ended up supporting um, Native Americans, Latinos, Chinese today. I mean, it has made a big difference, and eventually it had an impact on the way the 19th Amendment came, uh, came about. So uh, definitely check that website out um, and learn what the kids learned. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you so much. Remember, Black History is not just in February. It's 365 days a year. Uh, when we come back to the People Power Lunch Hour show, we'll speak with a Civil War reenactor, Earl Weeks, who's also a Philly Cam member and producer. 
he'll talk about some of his reenactment work and also how Caddo organized black men in this area to serve in the Army and in the Civil War. Thanks so much for watching and listening. We'll be right back. members of the 3rd Regiment Infantry, United States Colored Troops, Civil War Reenactors. We are a nonprofit charitable organization here to educate the masses in the history and service of the blacks of the 4th Civil War. 
And I like Civil War reenacting because it gives us the opportunity to tell the stories of our ancestors, stories that are forgotten, stories of bravery, stories of courage, stories of commitment. And that's why I like it, so that we can finally tell the truth about who we are. Well, I know you're wondering, just why should we come out? Why should we spend our time to come out and hear these stories of 150 years ago or more? Well, the reason that you should come out and hear these stories is because they are our stories. Our great-grandparents were the ones who had served, were the ones who had escaped from slavery to create the contraband camps in Cincinnati, in Washington, D.C., in New Orleans, Louisiana, and Nicholasville, Kentucky. They were our ancestors. So we need to come out to remember what they did and how they did it. Hello and welcome back to the People Power Lunch Hour Show. I'm your host, Vanessa Maria Graber. Uh, This month, it's February, it's Black History Month, and we wanted to talk about the life and work of Octavius Caddo. In the first half hour, we talked with historian V. Chapman Smith about the legacy that Octavius Caddo left behind with his activism and his work. One of the things that he also was very involved in was assembling some of the first regiments of black soldiers to serve in the Civil War, and he did that here in Philadelphia. In the studio, I have Earl Weeks. He's a Civil War reenactor. He's also a producer here at Philly Cam, uh, so he works with us uh, creating TV projects, and he's going to talk about his work as a Civil War reenactor um, and Again, the work of Octavius Caddo in in organizing black troops and that legacy that he left behind in that regard. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, Can you talk about their Civil War reenactments and, um, you know, what it meant at that time to have black soldiers serving in the war? As V. Chapman mentioned that at first when they tried to bring troops um, to Gettysburg. There was an emergency call for more troops. And Octavius Caddo said, you know, let's start getting some black soldiers on the line. They didn't want them to serve initially, but then later on they were able to um, serve in the war. And, and they did a lot of that training and recruitment here in Philadelphia. Can you give a, a short um, history about about what happened during that time? Okay. So um, Octavius Cato, a bunch of uh, students and other people from the uh, school that he was with, they went to Gettysburg to fight, but uh, they were taken, they took their weapons from them because they were black. They didn't want them to have weapons. They didn't want them to shoot um, other people. So they took their weapons from them and sent them home. But that was, um, and uh, you know, in 1863, uh, Abraham Lincoln came out with the Emancipation Proclamation. So the Emancipation Proclamation actually, um, it said that slaves were free, but only in the southern states, those states that were in rebellion. Since Lincoln was not in charge of those states, uh, it really carried no weight. But he also used the Emancipation Proclamation to allow black men to be able to fight. And then what happened once uh, he made that in July, they start making uh, boot camps. You know, um, Camp William Penn was the one that was made here outside Philadelphia and on what we call today Sheltonham in the Lamont section. 
Um, and it's called the Lamont section because uh, Lucretia Mott used to live there um, and her family. And what they did was they rented the area to the government for a dollar for the duration of the war to be used for colored troops there. So um, when uh, Octavius Cato was recruiting, he recruited men to come to Camp William Penn. Um, there ended up being uh, 11 regiments of black men that graduated from there. Um, the first was the 3rd United States Colored Troops. That's the unit that we represent here in Philadelphia as Civil War reenactors. But there were also were um, the 6th, the 8th, the 22nd, the 24th, the 32nd, the 41st, the 43rd, the 45th, and the 127th. And they were all called the United States Colored Troops. Um, that was the designation that was given to them. And, uh, you know, sometimes when we say it today, people look at us funny, but that's the term they used back then. So we carry it, too. Um, a lot of people know about the 54th Massachusetts. Um, they were also considered colored troops. They just don't use the name uh, determination. Also, there was actually a, a regiment from the 54th that were recruited, and they were from Philadelphia. Earl, how did you get involved in being a Civil War reenactor? Oh, my goodness. That's a crazy story. I was um, actually one of my friends. We're in disabled veterans group and stuff, and uh, he was one of the founders. And I seen him walk around in uniform. I never paid any attention. But uh, I was taking this class at Community College of Philadelphia, a corporate video. I decided I wanted to do a, a documentary on him. So I go to this meeting, and I'm like, I am not joining. I will not join this unit. So they're talking to me, and I'm talking to them, and they're telling me their stories. The next thing I know, I take out my wallet, pay 10 bucks. And, you know, even to today, 16 years later, I'm still saying I'm not joining. <laughs> and so talk about some of the work that you do as, as reenactors. Where do you do the reenactments, and what's the history that you'd like to convey to people when you do the reenactments? Okay, so we do not only reenactments because everybody, when they see the stress, is it a re reenactment? Oh, my goodness, we can't stand that because everything is not a reenactment. Okay. But we go to churches, we go to schools, we're in parades. You know, we do all kinds of things just to uh, support and sponsor, to educate, you know, um, because a lot of people, you know, myself, I never thought about black men fighting in the Civil War until, you know, as a grown-up, you know, and this is, would be nice if our children know this as they grow up instead of learning it later in life. In a way, it's an extension of your, your, your media work because you're telling a story through this work, right? You're storytellers. Exactly, exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about the uniform since you came dressed? <laughs> uh, because, you know, again, it, they tell a story, right? You know, yes, the bag, yeah. everything. For sure. Um, first of all, um, we'll start with the hat. Uh, they have they actually have a couple different ways, but originally these hats were left from the Battle of the War of eighteen twelve. So what they did was they uh, redesigned it, they colored it, and they took the stays out. They used to stand up. Um, when you're on march, they also use it to gather food and stuff like that. Um, our uniforms is all made of wool. Um, the reason is, during the war, the Civil War, the South had all the cotton. 
So the North could do nothing but make everything out of wool. They're, this is not a summer. They don't have a summer uniform. This is it. If it's 100-something degrees, you're supposed to have this on. Um, it's just uh, the boot. The boots are uh, weird because they're actually built neutral. There's no left or right. You could put them on either foot. You know, <laughs> that way if you had a hole in your shoe, you know, if you couldn't buy any new ones, you could just go take one off a body that was there and, and use it. And you just won. You didn't have to take both. Yeah, they're kind of like rectangular shaped. Yes, and actually they're called brogans. I know all the older people, especially old men, just say, like, oh, wow. You know, because in the old days, your dad used to always say, man, I'm going to get you some brogans because they'll last forever. You know, and that's what they are. Um, and then, like, uh, the jacket I have on, this is the uh, fatigue uniform, um, more for fighting or work. Um, they also have a field um, uniform they call the frock which would have, like, uh, shoulder brackets and everything on it. How were the black soldiers treated? Were they uh, respected, um, you know, especially by other people in the black community? Like, what happened to them during and after the war? Okay, um, in the black community, I would say they were respected. Um, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of uh, looking down at them because uh, you look at people, you know, just almost like the military today. You look at people sometimes as being used themselves, you know. Um, but uh, they did a lot, and they were able to uh, do some things, you know, like I'm um, talking about that. Um, you ever heard of Juneteenth? Yes. Okay. So uh, the Civil War was from 1861 to 1865. Uh, blacks were in the Civil War from 83 to, I mean, 63 to 65. Well, after the war was over, there was some people who still, some blacks, who still had time. So what they did was they uh, had them go to Texas. And then uh, 66, they went to, 1866, they went to Texas, and there still were people being enslaved. So uh, when they got there, um, th uh, something about the 54th, too, if you saw Glory, you saw where they had a thing about not getting paid correctly. Mm -hmm. So um, by that time, they caught up with the pay, and these, they, these soldiers had so much pay. So when they told the slaves that they were free, they ended up having a jubilee and, you know, like a big, huge party. So the slaves bought food and things from the plantations. The soldiers took and paid for other things. So that's what we celebrate today as Juneteenth. What impact did the addition of these 11 regiments have on the Civil War? A lot. You know, um, a lot of times we say it made the difference. Um, one of the differences when I talked about the Emancipation Proclamation before was that the, the secret of uh, the slaves being freed from the South is that they were helping the, the Confederates, you know, digging, um, horses, cooking, all kinds of stuff. So what happened was, as the North came, uh, the soldiers made it to South, the slaves escaped, and then they be became soldiers themselves. So that helped weaken the South. That was one of the biggest weapons. And um, can you talk about what went on at, at Camp William Penn and its historical significance? Yes. Um, Camp William Penn, they, uh, you know, of course, they had a lot of different training um, Frederick Douglass actually came there and talked to the troops. Um, Harriet Tubman came and talked to the troops. Um, 
a, a lot of people actually died before they left Camp William Penn because uh, they didn't know what we know about um, germs. You know, the doctors would wash their hand in the basin and then put their hand inside somebody and touch someone with fever and wash their hand in the same basin. You know, they knew nothing about germs, so a lot of people died there. But it trained the troops to be able to uh, fight, and they gained a lot of uh, medals of honor and stuff. Um, actually, one of the guys in our regiment is related to Sergeant Carney. He was in the 54th Massachusetts. He's the first um, black soldier to win the Medal of Honor for his uh, gallantry at Fort Wagner in South Carolina. That was in the movie Glory. He was the one who carried the flag. Um, so, um, And then the six United States color troops um, from New Jersey, they also trained at Camp William Penn. They won many Medals of Honor um, and battles in Virginia especially. So when's your next project or appearance? How can people in Philly interact with, uh, you know, the reenactors or, you know, the, his the storytellers that you're involved with? Okay, so well, that's a couple things. <laughs> One, um, on the 12th is Lincoln's birthday, and we'll be at the Union League um, at 12 o'clock. We'll be outside doing a, uh, a salute to Lincoln. And then later on, there'll be a parade. On uh, February 22nd, we'll be celebrating Octavius Cato's uh, Cato's. They say Cato and Cato, depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll be celebrating his birthday at um, City Hall. I think it's at 2 o'clock. Um, also, um, I actually wrote a play called uh, 54321 Beat Em All. It's about a battle rapper and a slave. And it'll be showed here at Philly Cam on February 15th. But the tickets, tickets are sold out, so you have to wait till it comes with Philly Cam. Only if you're staff. <laughs> check it out. But hopefully we could see, you know, the video on the channel and all of that. Um, Earl, you do amazing work, and um, you have so much pride in, in sharing this history, and I think it's so important. I want to thank you uh, for coming to share the story. How can people get in touch with you um, or get more information about all of this? Okay, so uh, the easiest thing would probably to uh, go on Facebook, uh, 3RD USCT, our third United States Color Troops on um, Facebook, and um, the same thing on Instagram. All right, and you can catch them February 15th at the Union League. February 12th. February 12th, sorry, 12th. And um, on February 29th. 22nd. 22nd. See, I'm getting all these dates wrong. <laughs> it's our busiest month. This February. <laughs> you can catch them at the Union League and also at City <laughs> Hall. Um, Earl, Earl Weeks, thank you so much for joining the show. You're welcome. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the People Power Lunch Hour show. We're going to continue Black History Month with our next episode. We're going to be talking about the MOVE uh, movement here in Philadelphia and its legacy. And again, if you'd like to catch this episode or any of our episodes of the People Power Lunch Hour show, you can go to our website, phillycam.org, and check out our video on demand. You could also visit our YouTube page, Philly Cam, and we have a People Power Lunch Hour playlist. Thank you so much for watching and listening, and we'll be back next time.